this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another episode of the hindu's in focus podcast today we have a special crossover episode featuring the hindu's on books a weekly podcast from india's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature In this episode we have G Sampath the Hindu's social affairs editor in conversation with authors Pranay Kotisthane and Abhiram Manchi on their new book titled When the Chips Are Down. We hope you like this episode. You can subscribe to the Hindu's on books podcast from the links in the show notes. This is the Hindu on books a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Hindu On Books podcast and I am your host G Sampath. Most of us would remember the sudden shortage of semiconductor chips during the pandemic, how it affected automobile manufacturing, how it delayed deliveries and in many cases even caused manufacturers to deliver cars without some features. But semiconductors form an integral component of not just cars these days, but almost any high-tech device that you may use, from smartphones and laptops to televisions, satellites, and of course all kinds of advanced military hardware. As nations jockey for geopolitical dominance, in addition to traditional factors such as military capabilities and economic power, technological prowess has become the third and perhaps most critical factor. control over the manufacture and availability of advanced semiconductors is a key element of geopolitical security and strategic autonomy and yet geopolitics and debates around semiconductor supply chains are mostly figured in parallel discourses and now a new book titled when the chips are down by pranay kotasthane and abhiram manchi brings these two discourses together and also presents a framework for understanding where india fits into the picture to tell us more about this exciting book we are cho- joined today by the two authors pranay is chairperson high tech geopolitics at the takshashila institution and abhiram has close knowledge of the semiconductor industry having worked there for close to 5 years pranay abhiram thank you so much for joining us thanks sampath thanks for the wonderful introduction Thank you, Sampa. Thank you for having us here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, uh, both of you. And to start with, uh, can you please tell us how did this book come about? What prompted it? Right. So, uh, Sampa, you know, um, as two IC design engineers who are interested in geopolitics. What is IC? Sorry, uh, please explain what is IC. Yeah, yeah. Great, great point. So, IC actually refers to uh, integrated circuit. Uh, it is a the colloquial name for it is a chip right so uh, so when we say semiconductor chips we are actually the technical name is ic right so uh, as two chip design engineers who were interested in geopolitics we actually sense something was different in this domain starting 2019 uh, as you rightly said in the introduction a lot of things were going on at that time you know before that the word technology was synonymous with software no one cared about hardware it was largely thought that chips are commoditized anyone can make it and it will just uh, appear you don't need to worry so much about it but in 2019 such conversations actually changed dramatically 
you had chip shortages during covid 19 which made governments take notice of this com complex supply chain the us began denying advanced semiconductors to chinese companies and then to russian companies as well worsening china taiwan relations further you know sort of intensified this debate and by 2022 china us india eu and japan all had released plans worth billions of dollars for setting up their own new semiconductor facilities and we began writing about this in sort of june 2019 uh, but such was the pace of the things happening in this domain that we tried to develop an entire research practice studies it systematically and eventually that resulted in this book right that's an interesting uh, genesis for this book no doubt uh, abiram you want to add something to that yeah, I mean, so uh, like Pranay was saying, right, it has become common parlance right now to talk about uh, semiconductors. E even when you're talking about uh, OpenAI and, you know, Chat GPT as well, what is holding Chat GPT at the backside is semiconductors and everyone is talking about how NVIDIA is working on it. So we just felt that, you know, chips are becoming so common right now, but you know, people don't know what is going on behind the scenes and the kind of geopolitical tensions that are taking place and how countries are actually uh, using chips to their advantage. So, yeah, like Pranay said, we just wanted to consolidate all that and show the, uh, you know, that angle that not many have covered before with this. Yeah, and if I if I may add, Sampad, there was another element that sort of irked us a lot that even though India is one of the crucial nodes of the supply chain and we'll discuss this later there are very few indian views on this uh, so e, the books etc which talk about semiconductor geopolitics also largely focus on us china and not india's game plan or role going ahead so that was also something we wanted to set right and at least make an attempt to explain the geopolitics from an authentic indian lens so that was another motivation Right. I mean, that's, of course, a very important uh, point there. The Indian perspective on this entire uh, semiconductor geopolitics, I mean, the, the general uh, general tendency is to assume that India is more of a bystander or an observer rather than an active participant in this entire uh, scenario. And you mentioned also earlier, Pranay, about uh, the U.S. sort of curbing the kind of semiconductor technology uh, access to China and Russia and so on. And we also, I think the, the first time the entire semiconductor issue, so to speak, sort of bust into the popular mainstream consciousness was uh, during the pandemic and Taiwan came into the picture in a big way. So can you explain for the benefit of our listeners here, what, what exactly does Taiwan do? It's a tiny country. Uh, what does it do in the semiconductor universe and, and what, what extent are the geopolitical tensions which we know are there? between China and Taiwan, to what extent are they to do with Taiwan's outsized role, so to speak, as a hub for the semiconductor supply chain? Yeah, so to to get to know what uh, Taiwan is doing and has been doing, I think we need to just take a step back and understand the semiconductor supply chain. So it is divided into three parts right now, uh, three main parts where the chip design forms one part, and chip manufacturing is the second part and uh, chip assembly is the third part. So companies like Apple and NVIDIA and all come into the chip design aspect where they'll just design those chips, 
they do not have any manufacturing plants as such to manufacture them they will oh, what do you mean by designing the designing the chips like is it like designing a car once you design the car the design is fixed and then you you manufacture it assemble it wherever uh, you want so what exactly like do you design a different chip for different products or is it like one particular kind of design which has applications across products like what exactly is the scope of this design thing you're talking about um yeah you can say both actually uh, there are some chips which can be which are general purpose chips which can be used for uh, different uh, you know different things that needed to be done uh, and there are chips which are very specific these are known as application specific integrated circuits so application specific chips uh, um, you can think of you know you, you were talking about so many places where uh, particular chips are being used right from military uh, uh, to cars etc so you have uh, let's say in cars you will have display chips whose only work is to you know make, make sure that display is running and it's fine and the touch screen is working and everything as such and you know in missiles there is probably a gps positioning chip as such which which takes care of just the positioning of the missile so you you have application specific chips as well and you know some are more general purpose chips so this uh, you know you have uh, this intel i3 i5 i7 kind of chips where uh, they are used for laptops and uh, different kinds of laptops end up using the same chip uh, and these are general purpose chips they are they are they are supposed to do uh, multiple tasks at the same time yeah so these are the two different kinds of chips that are there and uh, the chip design is where you actually define what the chip is specifically supposed to do um uh, let's say the display chip like i was saying right it is supposed to show the display and uh, you know, there are different tasks that run behind to make sure that uh, the particular display and how much it gets refreshed and uh, how it works and how the touch screen is supposed to respond and the chip the particular set of directions that the chip requires uh, that is called the chip design so few chip designers will be sitting some place uh, most probably in us or india and uh, they will actually make sure that the chip performs exactly what is required so this is the chip designing phase if i can just add to that uh, the analogy we can think of is suppose like chip design is basically architectural design right so uh, the latest apple a14 processor for example uh, sampath will have Uh, many or close to 134 million transistors transistors are a basic building block per millimeter square of the chip now you can imagine if you have to fit all those things which are particularly connected from in uh, specific ways to each other this is not a task which can be done by humans right you need specialized software so you can think of an architecture uh, an um, uh, architect who is designing the entire layout of where the transistor should be placed how it should be connected to all that is what happens in the design process and the output of this design process is not anything physical it's just a blueprint just like an architect gives a blueprint of a building or a city to uh, some someone a contractor who will actually make the building come to life similarly the output of the design will just be a blueprint with uh, a file in a sense uh, uh, which will tell everyone that this is how the transistors are supposed to be laid out this is how they are supposed to be connected so on and so forth great great i appreciate this detailed explanation of the design uh, aspect uh, uh, pranay and abiram so i was just so abiram you were saying about three different seg- segments of this process right design manufacture and assembly 
I thought assembly was the same as manufacture. Again, going by the car analogy, like what is the difference between manufacture and assembly? When you assemble, it becomes manufacture, right? Um, not exactly. So yeah, uh, you have this chip design that is available. Uh, companies like Nvidia will give it to these uh, manufacturing firms, and uh, what happens there is uh, they print the design onto a silicon. Uh, let's say, let's say it's a small. Uh, let's say a square the size of probably your nail uh, the whole the 130 million transistors that were pranay was talking about the whole con- complete blueprint gets printed on this small silicon substrate which is like which forms the core memory or the core design of the chip and assembly is where this is placed in a kind of plastic shell so that you, you know i mean we take all our phones and uh, everywhere with us they have to be rugged they have to be uh, you know they should not have any electronic interference that affects them so the shell that the chip inside is placed on that is the assembly part of it and the printing is a manufacture part yes correct okay okay so sorry go on you were, you were talking about taiwan's role that was a bigger question you were addressing yeah 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 so he, here uh, the manufacture part of it is where taiwan primarily comes in and specifically in taiwan uh, there is this one particular company called tsmc which is taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company and uh, its main role is to manufacture chips from other companies it's a pure play foundry so it doesn't design any of its chips it just manufactures so uh, nvidia and apple come to tsmc with their designs and all this uh, company does is just manufactures them in fact all of apple's iphone chips are manufactured by tsmc and uh, you know tsmc has like 60% of the entire chip manufacturing market and if you look at um high level specific chips like you know cutting edge which are used in uh, you know military which are used in iphones etc the you know the best of the best 3 nanometer 4 nanometer the smallest kind of chips most uh, efficient ones only tsmc is able to make them and they have like 92% market share in that 92% uh, market share of the entire world of chip manufacturing yes for advanced chips the cutting edge ones tsmc has 92% of that yeah uh, so you can get an idea looking at the sheer mind boggling number there that they have a huge role to play in uh you know what kind of chips get sold and how many the number that gets sold and any kinds of tensions around taiwan will inevitably take a look at tsmc uh you know a, any kind of shock to tsmc and taiwan as a whole is going to affect the entire semiconductor supply chain and as we have seen during the pandemic uh where chips shortage were uh, you know everywhere uh, all kinds of industries were getting affected from the car industry to even you know uh, the washing machines uh, and uh, the sensors were uh, which would uh, uh, spray uh, synth- um, hand sanitizer on your hand right all those were chips were also short in supply and you know any kinds of tensions for taiwan will again lead to a similar kind of problem uh, so that is why it's very important and uh, manufacturing is also it, it is not easy to set up uh tsmc is spending around 40 billion dollars to set up just two manufacturing plants in the usa right now so the sheer scale of it is you know something that it is very difficult to fathom 
Right. I mean, the, the book also uh, says, you know, that that India and Taiwan were more or less, more or less at the same stage at one point, you know, in history on semiconductor chip making before Taiwan pulled far ahead. I mean, can you elaborate on this? Like, wh- why couldn't we keep up with the manufacturing process, you know, the, the advanced chips? How come Taiwan, which is like a fraction of our size in terms of not just size, but also resources, manpower, I mean, population, demographics, how come it's able to sort of capture 92% of this, whereas we, we, have, we have all the resources, we have the talent, the high-tech talent too. How come we didn't uh, make it? Yeah, if I can take this, right. Um, actually, uh, Sampad, India has not done well in many large-scale manufacturing uh, projects. You know, So, it's not just semiconductors and the pathologies are similar. Uh, it, I won't say it's like specific to semiconductors. Like we have manufacturing at a large scale is a weak link of India, right? We are not don't do that well in many sectors. But we like we that. do large scale manufacture of two wheelers and four wheelers. That's just one. That was one uh, area of success where you had specific exemptions given to Maruti, etc., which created that particular ecosystem. Uh, but that is hasn't been copied in many areas, right? We have fallen behind in textiles, we have fallen behind in uh, larger electronics, etc. Right? So that is one general thing. So what I will uh, explain is, see, Taiwan and India started in a similar level in the sense both of them had some sort of technology transfer from the US in this sector. Okay, that is one critical element. This was when, say, around the 1960s, uh, you would say? Yes, 60s, 70s, both India, Taiwan uh, began. And uh, TSMC was, began in the late 1980s. And it, at that point of time, it was doing uh, uh, very low-end assembly work. It was not doing the kind of things it is doing now. So, it is only after 30, 20, 30 years of constant investment uh, in that area that it has been able to reach where it is you know so earlier the us was happy to contract the design uh, the manufacturing out to other companies because manufacturing is a very uh, environmentally harmful process at back at that time and also it was something which was not uh, a high value add process in the sense a lot of value was captured in the design stage, not in the manufacturing work, which was sort of contracted out. So Taiwan got into it, uh, invested in it over 30, 40 years, uh, collaborated with the world, supplied to the world, exported to the world, refined its processes, and it got to where it is. Now, if you look at India, that was not the case. You know, in the uh, first version, India has been trying for it from a long time. It's not as if Indian policymakers didn't try it. But in the first stage, we were trying to do this through government-run companies. Uh, government-run companies tried this. There were two of them, Bharat Electronics Limited and Semiconductor Complex Limited, SCL. Both of them were government-run entities which tried to do that. But soon, by the government approach became for the government approach in the sense that uh, companies uh, instead of trying to export it out, trying to uh, serve a bigger market, they started producing only for government-specific applications and lost the lead in trying to compete with the larger world. Okay, So that was one thing, sort of uh, government-run companies had no incentive to compete 
in sort of a hyper competitive space that demanded constant capital infusion and technology upgradation like abhiram said uh, right now if you want to start one fab it costs 12 billion dollars and back in 17 what do you mean by one fab yeah one manufacturing facility so 12 billion dollars and if you were to build it what would be like the return on it i mean it would be like manifold of that or like does it take a long time yeah Why? yeah it will it will take around 3 4 years to build it so first of all 12 billion dollars just go into building it uh, and then you will receive many many fold times of that only if you produce large amounts of chips right so if you have large amounts of uh, uh sort of supply uh, design companies who are giving you contracts for running this facility then you will be able to produce millions and millions of chips and recoup that cost and you will be able to recoup many many times of that 12 billion dollars provided that uh, you get those kinds of orders right so how was how was taiwan able to generate that kind of capital investment Uh, at a fraction of india's size how come india was not able to generate that kind of capital investment or did we did we just uh, like ignore or did not pay attention to the fact that this industry is going to be really big and we need to build capacity in this uh, area correct so uh, one it was not just that taiwan built it uh, single handedly there were many uh, money came through fdi money came through uh, technology transfer from the us etc right so uh, it was and also through the private sector india's approach before liberalization was that these sectors should be run only by government run companies right and because you are thinking from that lens then you are only thinking of okay can i uh, get started and provide these kinds of things to government military etc you are not looking at providing uh, getting orders from apple getting orders from other companies and supplying it to the larger world right so the outlook itself is fundamentally different uh, so that was one reason second these companies are also shielded from internal competition right so as we know competition forces companies to seek differentiation uh and what in, happened in india was bel and scl were first both they start, both of them started manufacturing semiconductors but from the government's perspective this competition was actually undesirable they said having two companies which perform the same sort of task wastes government resources so bel and scl you mean bharat heavy what 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 limited bharat electronics limited and semiconductor complex limited as i mentioned earlier both were government run companies which first manufactured chips but eventually the government said that scl you should manufacture chips and bel you only assemble them into final products and you don't manufacture in taiwan on the other hand uh, government led uh, efforts were able to spin off multiple private companies and there was successful competition between them whereas that didn't happen in india uh, and third reason was also that we had inward looking trade and business policies in india uh, and that uh, that proved costly this was the case both with ussr china india as well uh, and what happened was that the dominant economic narrative at that time was that we need to save foreign exchange and dollars from leaving the country and this meant there were very strict import controls there were very high tariffs and this meant that if bel or scl wanted to manufacture chips by importing Uh, some materials or importing some machines 
it was very difficult for uh, them to do that you know their equipment remained stuck at ports awaiting government approvals and so the cumulative effect was that the products that dl and scl made couldn't compete internationally and we they ended up supplying chips only to a small government run sector instead of competing in the broader world right also related to this uh, prane uh, you i mean the book also says that uh, india's main strength in this entire chip uh, manufacturing uh, slash assembly supply chain is in chip design and then you had also mentioned that chip design is is of high value it's higher up the value chain so if we are a strong player in the value chain which is higher up so to speak how come we are not a major player in the entire semiconductor uh, industry we are even though we we, uh, we are in the design stage which comes prior to manufacture and assembly we don't seem to be one of the power players which happen to be us taiwan you know eu and so on why are we on the margins despite having a strong presence in the design stage of things yeah right so the way i put it is we are in hardware where we were in software around 10 15 years ago right so uh, right now we have a lot of presence in the form of design houses uh, of mncs which are in india right so all the all of india's semiconductor design engineers largely are working for mncs which have do substantial part of the design work in india right so for example texas instruments will have a texas instruments india facility where they'll do the design work and will be largely in india there will be a, a large chunk of indian engineers working on this so you can think of of, of the top 10 semiconductor companies by revenue uh, fabless companies all of them have their design centers in india right so we have in this human capital intensive stage we do have a presence but what we don't have is products which are owned by indians and they have an indian intellectual property on this product right so because does taiwan have that no so taiwan has some companies taiwan doesn't as abiram mentioned taiwan's expertise is not in design they largely focus on this contract manufacturing and they have got that really really good at doing that at the advanced uh, cutting edge chips right so they they don't do this us does this so this design is it isn't it like if you're designing something i'm i'm again taking your architecture analogy if i am an architect and i design something i get the ip for it how come that doesn't seem to happen in this like you're saying we do it uh, we don't have any companies what you are saying is exactly true the so the uh, the architect owns the ip right so here also the uh, companies which uh, are manufacturing in india as i said are mncs uh, i mean the companies that are designing in india are mncs and they own the ip so that's why they are, we are indian companies don't exist but what i'm saying is that this is just a stage just like in software 10 years ago we didn't have any software products which were indian even though we had lot of software services companies similarly in india we have lot of design services companies today uh, and design houses we don't have a large number of products yet but that happens over time just as it happened in software so this is where we are in that journey it takes time to build all these capabilities right abiram you want to add anything to this um no i think pranay covered most of what i was thinking about also yeah 
Great. So I was also interested in uh, asking you guys about two very interesting concepts uh, in the book. One is this creative insecurity you talk about and then supply chain resilience. Uh, and I think both of these are, I think, really important uh, from the other other side of the debate. We haven't really focused too much on till now, which is the geopolitics side of it. Uh, so can you explain what, what exactly you mean by creative insecurity and supply chain resilience? I mean, do they, and, and do they have a lot to uh, offer in terms of ensuring a country's strategic autonomy and and you know especially in the in the context of this entire competition over semiconductors sure uh, so uh, creative insecurity before explaining that concept i'll just explain what it might lead to i think creative insecurity will mean that you might see some non linear breakthroughs in semiconductors over the next 5 10 years what do you mean by non-linear breakthroughs? Yeah, non-linear uh, normal breakthroughs are just improvement in making chips smaller, faster, more uh, con- consuming less voltage, but they'll still be based largely on silicon, which is the base material. But non-linear breakthrough would mean, for example, we might have new materials instead of silicon. Uh, we might have new techniques which replace the traditional ways of manufacturing chips which is a very very capital intensive process uh, right one machine for example which is required to make uh, an advanced chip uh, uh, the photolithography machine it costs 180 million dollars so obviously it is very costly it is uh, so there are companies which have been trying to find alternate ways and i think in this decade you might see new alternatives coming Thirdly, you might also see open, capable open source hardware coming up to replace proprietary tech. These are the things I see creative insecurity doing. Now, what is it creative insecurity actually, right? So, uh, this concept is not ours. It is from uh, Mark Zachary Taylor. Uh, it is a, uh, a, and he studies the politics of innovation. Uh, now, creative insecurity means is, a, is actually a positive difference between the threats of economic and military competition from abroad and the dangers of political and economic rivalries at home. What this literature on national innovation tells us is that greater this difference, the more likely that a nation state will choose to focus on innovation. Right? Uh, you can think of it, any money put into innovation is one rupee taken from somewhere else. So why would companies focus on innovation? One reason that this literature cites is when they feel that they are creatively insecure in the sense that they feel that external threats are higher and nation states need to do something to innovate and improve their capabilities. That's what has happened with China and that's what is now happening with India also thinking in terms of the threat that it faces from China. right? So these things lead nation states to focus on innovation and invest a lot of energy, money, time, energy into it. So this is not very much like the Sputnik moment uh, when, you know, this uh, a beach ball sized uh, artificial satellite uh, led to drastic changes in science and technology innovation policies in the US. Uh, and similarly, this is where we are today in the technology geopolitics scenario. So this is what creative insecurity means. Right. And uh, what about the supply chain resilience uh, you were talking to? I understand that, you know, the fact that uh, semiconductor manufacturing is concentrated in one country. And if something were to happen there, let's say China takes over uh, or tries to take over Taiwan and then 
your entire supply chain goes for a toss as it did uh, during the pandemic so how do you ensure some kind of res- resilience so that your industrial output doesn't get affected is it by diversifying and if you want to diversify uh, your sources how do you do it when you only got uh, taiwan like how does right. it work yeah i i will just correct this that taiwan is not the only manufacturer taiwan does the manufacturing of the most advanced chips right uh, so uh, it's not that taiwan is the only manufacturer that's one thing to remember No, I said only because you said ninety-two percent. Yeah, of the most advanced chips, right? So, uh, of say whatever is do the most cutting edge, but uh, most of the products that we use, say cars, etc., don't require the most cutting edge ones. So, or la- laptops, etc. So, those will still be using uh, some older chips, which are manufactured in Taiwan, South Korea, China, US, Europe, etc. So, that's one thing. now what supply chain resilience uh, so supply chain resilience to understand it you have to differentiate it from another concept called supply chain self sufficiency or supply chain indigenization now what when you think of resilience uh, we need to think of the, uh, first understand that the semiconductor supply chain uh, to make a single chip you need to traverse multiple countries right think of it it is like uh, Uh, you are running a race and you are passing the baton from one country to the other so for example the us semiconductor industry association uh, has estimated that a typical semiconductor process spans 4 plus countries 3 plus trips around the world and 12 days in transit right so some company will do the design some company will do a small component of the design work another country will do the manufacturing the third country will do assembly the materials will come from some other country right so all this gets together to build that chip now uh, when you think and understand this structure it means that there is no one nation state that can completely indigenize the entire supply chain it's not like the steel industries of the past where you could have largely domestic industries you will need to depend on components and dependencies from uh, and intermediate goods from a, a, a different countries in the world so when you think of this as a lens the idea should be that you don't need to indigenize the entire semiconductor supply chain you just need to make it resilient and by resilience as you rightly said you need you need to ensure that there's diversification and you essentially from a geopolitical angle you need to achieve two goals one you need to build enough redundancy in the supply chain such that uh, your adversary doesn't dominate any single part and second you need to build enough collective expertise in all aspects of that supply chain to outpace your adversary so you can do that neither of these two goals requires aiming for complete self sufficiency in fact countries can achieve these goals only through plurilateral strategic cooperation so the way i put it is that multilateral cooperation will is a necessity and not a choice to achieve supply chain resilience right ramanda thank you for explaining that so well uh, so with such clarity pranay this brings me to my uh, next question i mean in terms of self sufficiency of the uh, or the resilience of the supply chain you when you clearly explained why indigenization is not an option here so in terms of ensuring resilience and self sufficiency uh, so to speak how would you place the leaders in this sector such as the us eu russia china taiwan and india 
in this entire matrix geopolitical matrix where everybody is trying to gain some kind of strategic autonomy if not an advantage with regard to semiconductors right so um, i'll go back to the structure that uh, abhiram mentioned in the beginning so if you took a design uh, which is a capital uh, which is a human capital intensive states right you largely need uh, large number of engineers and architects who can make is this so not likely this... to be uh, taken over by artificial intelligence you said human capital intensive just yeah, one no, no. Uh, you there will be in fact there is lot of work happening on this on artificial intelligence but you will still need a lot of architects uh, you know you will it's not as if uh, you can replace those uh, as if at least not yet so uh, in that sense uh, because it is a human capital intensive stage the dominant position in this is for, uh, in by occupied by us companies uh, and they are uh, largely a dominant superpower and we should also remember us is not just a semiconductor power but it is a superpower in many other domains as well so the restrictions that you see on china etc they are able to apply this because they are a superpower they are able to tell a taiwanese company to not supply chips to a chinese company because the taiwanese company is dependent on something which they buy from a us company so this is what we call secondary sanctions so these are the kinds of things only the us is able to do but we should remember us also cannot do everything on its own it even though so many design things architecture design happens in the us manufacturing still goes to taiwan assembly happens in china so on and so forth right so this is the uh, thing to remember uh, the second uh, and, and a sub component of this design as i said happens in india as well where services companies manufacture uh, design components of the entire architecture largely for mnc companies which are more or less uh, either american or korean the second thing we should remember uh, is on taiwan right so taiwan as uh, abhiram mentioned is the leader in the second stage which is manufacturing and it is capital intensive stage so it does that contract manufacturing part quite well there are other competitors but it has mastered the recipe of making manufacturing chips with high efficiency at the most cutting edge so that's where it has the advantage and it still uh, survives uh, china also does some part of it south korea also does some part of it and us also does something at the uh, trailing end of semiconductors then the third part is uh, assembly and this is a labor intensive process you require large amount of skilled and semi skilled labor for this stage and also some uh, good machines but largely labor intensive stage this is where china has a, a amazing amount of presence uh, and also some component of it is in taiwan uh, so this is where china has a dominance the last stage is uh, as i said for all these complicated manufacturing and assembly stages there are a lot of sub stages you need specific materials you need uh, gases to ensure purity and all those things are uh, done by japanese companies so japanese companies have an expertise in manufacturing uh, materials and gases at high purity uh, and that is where, where japan comes in finally european union uh, also has one company called the asml uh, which is the company in netherlands that has a machine 
which is used for um, producing chips at the most cutting edge. So this chip, uh, this machine uh, is called a uh, EUV photolithography machine, which I was talking about, costs around one eighty million dollars a piece, and that again is just done by one company today uh, in the EU. So this is how these different countries are stacked up, uh, and we should remember these are all companies performing one component of the entire supply chain. There is no one company which does all of it uh, at the cutting edge. Right. I mean, this is clearly a very, very globalized uh, industry. I mean, uh, from what I can hear from you, uh, Pranay. And uh, one last question before we uh, wrap up. And uh, I was just wondering, you, you you did mention just now that assembly is uh, a labor-intensive process. It's say, skilled and semi-skilled labor. And in the context of uh, where we are sitting in India, and the fact that we sort of missed the bus earlier on in the 1980s because of the kind of economic policy choices we've made, as you rightly outlined. I was just wondering, what should be India's strategy going forward? Should it build on its strength even more as a chip design hub? Or should it expand its competencies forward and backward along the supply chain? Or maybe, you know, given the fact that we do need a lot of employment generation, and we have a lot of skilled and semi-skilled labor. Is it possible for India to sort of reach the level of other countries like China in terms of assembly? Uh, so that was my question. Abiram, you want to go first on this? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, regarding the assembly part of it, right? Uh, the, there are actually, uh, with the current uh, uh, CHIPS Act that happens in the US, there is a similar that has taken uh, place in India as well, where the government put in, $10 billion to develop the semiconductor manufacturing and assembly industry. And uh, the second revision of the, uh, the of the act made sure that, you know, there was enough incentives and uh, PLIs for assembly, chip assembly as well. And uh, multiple different con- co- companies are actually thinking of getting into the assembly part of the supply chain right now. So there is scope for growth uh, for India here. Uh, and uh, but the thing is, there is there is to be a lot of things that have to go at the same time at the same pace for us to actually reach the level that uh, other countries are already at. Suppose China or some countries in Southeast Asia and Taiwan and all. Um, so they have already perfected this process, and uh, there has to be a lot of trust that has to be placed uh, by uh, the different companies to actually come and place an assembly. Uh, unit manufacturing unit in India. So it will be a long process, but it is definitely possible for India to actually take up assembly because it is the least technical of the three. And uh, almost all the countries that we have talked about, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, all started up as assembly hubs and then went on to grow into manufacturing hubs as well. Yeah. If I could add to it, um, uh, Sampath, actually already there is uh, one uh, assembly firm of the US, Micron, which has uh, agreed to set up a plant in India. And this came, uh, this was announced in the PM's visit to the US most recently. So uh, that is happening. And the way I would answer your question is, uh, we have to do more of everything. I don't think there is an option that we can't, uh, we can sort of, Uh, say that we will only do this but i would say uh, like you rightly pointed out that uh, you need to think in terms of objectives right why would uh, india need a semiconductor industry 
so broadly from a political perspective there are three kinds of goals that i can think of one is to reduce vulnerability uh, such that if there is something which happens in a third country you are still having some way to manage it second objective could be to capitalize on your strength such that you occupy one small component of this supply chain and because of your dominance there you have a bargaining chip right so if another nation state were to constrain you on another uh, part of the supply chain you have something to do in another uh, part of the supply chain so that is what you would count as capitalizing on your strength and the third goal for india could be to reduce sort of import dependence on the on a structural adversary which is china so these are largely the three goals that any government policy tries to achieve my sense is that we are the current policies focus way too much on trying to reduce import dependence on china and way too less on trying to capitalize on our strength which is design so i would say the government uh, policies are largely in the right direction but their priorities are a bit jumbled up so if i were to think of restructuring it i would focus a lot on the design uh, as uh, because so that we can quickly gain the capability there to occupy uh, a, a, an important part of the supply chain not just from the services point of view but also from a products point of view do we do we have any design companies at all in india which make products who own the ip for the design yes yes we do have but they are still uh, small in number the government data suggests that uh, right now we just have design companies amounting to 150 crore of revenue annual revenue which is a small number so we do have a few uh, which are coming up uh, but not not to the extent that you would definitely want right so uh, but expertise exists uh, you have to uh, remember right uh, if you uh, someone has to make a chip product firm today Uh, you need a venture capital industry you need people who understand this uh, and that takes sort of time and it will it will happen like it happened in the case of software but it might take some time right? so, so do we have like i mean i i mean while while going through the book i read at some point that unlike say the us in india you know design uh, chip design uh, entities and even for manufacturing and assembly one of the hurdles or obstacles was the fact that they did not have a huge market in india given our comparatively uh, smaller manufacturing base so do we still don't have enough of a market for chips in india what if some chip manufacturer or a designer or an assembly uh, entity want to set up facilities in india an indian one for the indian market without worrying too much about are you going to get an export contract or not will that work or is it too small a market even now this is a great question uh but we have to remember a large part of things that we do have to be done for the world in this sector taiwan doesn't manufacture only for taiwanese companies right taiwan manufactures for the world uh, so on and so forth even china manufactures for the world not for india so what is what definitely has changed now and that is where what you say is absolutely right is that upstream electronics manufacturing has started to happen in india right so for example now apple is manufacturing its uh, apple is assembling its phone in india right or apple is doing a large number of things in india some people might also start doing laptops or others so once you have that upstream demand coming in it is not that the, the chips uh, the phones made by apple are only meant for indians right they will finally go whoever is ready to pay that much for an uh, a phone 
but because those apple manufacturing facilities are in india they would it will be in apple's interest to try and also source a large number of components locally so that they are able to quickly turn around phone after phone every christmas right so that is what is driving uh, will probably de- drive a demand for having the downstream chip making etc also happen within india so this is what happens so first you have electronics assembly happening in india then probably you will have a chip assembly happening in india once chip assembly starts then probably you will also have manufacturing and other upstream things happening so this takes time we have to remember taiwan also did it in 30 40 years and india also needs to start its journey maybe with over time in 20 30 years we will be able to get to a reasonable stage in manufacturing a cutting edge stage in design and uh, uh, also a de- reasonable stage in assembly but it takes time right i mean we are on the track but it will take about 20 25 years as you said and i think you also did a great job you and abiram of outlining the larger perspective on this uh, in terms of geopolitical uh, objectives reducing vulnerability getting a bargaining uh, chip so to speak uh, using uh, its its sense of positionality in the design stage and also reducing uh, import dependence all these factors i think should hopefully drive india's uh, strategy in the semiconductor domain thank you so much uh, pranay and abiram for this conversation it was a really a fascinating uh, topic it was a pleasure talking to both of you thank you so much thank you thank you Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 